Welcome to Accelerating Government with ACT-IAC on Federal News Network. Now your host, Dave Winogren. Welcome to another episode of Accelerating Government. For over 40 years, the American Council for Technology and Industry Advisory Council has served a unique position in the federal marketplace as a nonprofit whose purpose is to bring together government and industry leaders to accelerate government mission outcomes through collaboration, leadership, and education. On the first part of today's show, we'll be talking about cybersecurity education with Karen Evans, Managing Director of the Cyber Readiness Institute. Karen has served in a number of senior positions in government to include federal CIO, DHS CIO, Assistant Secretary of the Department of Energy. She is a longtime friend of mine. Welcome to the show, Karen. Oh, I'm excited to be here, Dave. We're going to have a great show. Absolutely. And we're also joined today by Dan Chuck, the executive director of the IBM Center for the Business of Government, former OMB executive, former chair of the Industry Advisory Council, and a longtime friend of the show, and I will say frequent guest. Welcome back, Dan. Thanks, Dave. It's always great to be here, and especially with Karen. There we go. <laughs> it is really great to have you both here today. Longtime friends and colleagues, and I'm delighted to have a chance to talk about some really important stuff with you. In addition to the august positions that I just highlighted, perhaps most important for today's show is that you both serve as fellows at the National Academy of Public Administration, where you recently led the study team that has just released an important report titled, A Call to Action, the Federal Government's Role in Building a Cybersecurity Workforce for the Nation. So let's get started with some initial stage setting. Dan, why don't you give us a little background on the study? What prompted it and what did it entail? So the congressional staff, both author- authorization and appropriations, meaning the, the ones that write the laws and the ones that give the money in that order, have long been questioning sort of the efficacy of the government's cyber workforce programs. Are they doing well? Could they be done better? Um, what can Congress do to help? As part of that longstanding review, the DHS Appropriations Committee in uh, December of 2020, basically, actually, I think it was December 2021. I'm sorry, it was last year. Basically instructed the uh, DHS to contract with the National Academy of Public Administration or a similar enterprise to do a study of the DHS cybersecurity programs that are now held in the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA and their place in the sort of larger cybersecurity workforce realm in terms of of government's activity and and how that was driving forward better cybersecurity talent in the nation. So DHS decided to go ahead and do that work with NAPA. And the way that NAPA does studies, uh, as you mentioned, they have a study team of the professional staff, and that study team is overseen by a panel of NAPA fellows. And Karen and I were the co-chairs for the study team, which also included a very distinguished fellows, us Costas Torregas, uh, Danny Weitzner and Mary Lou Goodyear. And, and that's what started the study. And the last thing I'll say is that we we took the congressional charge and decided to answer a larger question. Uh, and we kept DHS and CISA uh, uh, and uh, the Hill prized of this along the way. And that was with the introduction of the uh, White House National Cybersecurity Director's Office, also statutorily required, um, and Chris Inglis's role as the leader of that office. We realized that it's it might be a good time to step back and take a broader look at the cybersecurity workforce landscape across the government, DHS and elsewhere, and how that is uh, helping to drive cybersecurity activity for the nation in terms of understanding where are the talent and skill gaps, how can the public and private sectors work together, and perhaps most importantly, how can academia and K-12 education and vocational education uh, really work to up their game in terms of content and delivery uh, that, that provided the skills to provide better cybersecurity workers in the future. 
And so with that large um, uh, goal in mind, uh, we set out to do our work. Very good. Karen, let's uh, have you pick up the study story from there. Why don't you give us your thoughts on the study and also highlight for us some of the key findings? So there, there's a lot in uh, the key findings, but part of the story, I think, is um, all of us, and we're talking about how long we've known each other, have been working on cybersecurity workforce issues. And Napa had previously done a study on cybersecurity workforce issues that was out there and really looking at it and how do you do this, right? So there was there are a lot of efforts underway between um, what is happening at Department of Defense, what's happening in the intelligence community, and also what is happening at the National Institute of Standards and Technology through their initiative called the National Initiative for Cybersecurity Education. Nice. So that we're just affirming that the government has a lot of acronyms. But there were a lot of these efforts that were underway. And to Dan's point, it, it, we were saying, hey, there's this, there's this opportunity and we wanted to talk to the Hill to make sure not just focused on what CISA is doing in education, but what could really be done from a national workforce effort and then how to do this. So there were key issues that the study team looked at and some of the key findings, and it's not really going to surprise folks, right? Like we need a national, but it's a government-wide strategy, but it's focused nationally on the workforce. Um, and it, we outlined four elements associated with that, and it's not going to surprise folks because NIST had been working on several of these as well, right? And so this is giving the ability to accelerate that. So the four elements in the government-wide strategy that we were recommending needed to be in there was encouraging more people to choose careers in cybersecurity through outreach education, establishing education and training and build upon competencies and alternate pathways, overcoming the barriers for recruiting talent and matching people to jobs, and then the ability to assess performance and promoting innovation in the workforce development practice. So that those were the, the key tenants in the strategy. I think what I'd like to do is throw it over a little bit here to Dan. I'm going to let, I normally cover governance, but I'm going to let Dan talk a little bit more about the governance. And then I'm going to say my favorite topic for me about the Bureau's cyber statistics. Thanks, Karen. So Dave, one of the things we realized was that a good strategy only goes so far as the people and incentives to implement it. And so you need, especially in an area like cyber, where, as Karen mentioned, there's a whole lot of activity going on in a whole lot of places. And there are really good working level relationships. There's been um, coordination across different agencies, but there hasn't really been an agreement across agencies that a particular strategy is the national strategy. The closest thing is probably the NICE strategy that Karen mentioned. Even there, um, it's more, it, it, agencies were supportive of it and uh, they wanted to go forward. And so as Karen said, in order to directly drive this in terms of a sort of a White House led national approach, we thought it was important to match that with a governance framework where you'd have the White House uh, Office of the National Cyber Director and Karen and I have both worked in in White House agencies at the Office of Management and Budget uh, and understand that, you know, the importance of that role re relative to an agency taking a lead is the sort of visibility, the um, representation from the center of government, the ability to command and, and help direct resources working across the budget process. And the ability to convene with you know senior level executives, C level executives, and so what we recommended was that there ought to be a governance framework where the national cybersecurity director is working with DHS and NIST and the uh, National Security Agency, 
and all the other players and develop a sort of a set of roles and responsibilities and a governance framework that could implement the strategy that Karen was describing. Um, and that without that, you'd sort of still have a, you'd have a strategy, but everybody would sort of be interpreting it in different ways and it wouldn't get necessarily done. And the final thing I'll say on this is that it gives sort of a place for senior executives at the private sector level to kind of come in and help understand what can we do to help direct our workforce efforts and help in our work with academic institutions to drive how they design their curricula. So a lot of different reasons for sort of stepping up the governance framework. And, uh, and then the final thing we recommended was in order to do this, we need to have a measurement system to ensure whether the system is working well. And I'll turn it back over to Karen. So one of the things, Dave, we didn't want to lose sight of the original intent of Congress, which was for us to study DHS programs. And so to really look at what were the workforce programs within DHS, which was done. And so the study team and then the panel looked at things and, and it, they were evaluated around diversity, excellence and scalability. And I think the scalability piece is the key piece, right? When you start talking about, can you do this stuff from a national perspective and can you close gaps? And do you really know where the gaps are to be able to close the gaps? And so that was a lot of the discussion that the panel had was because several of these programs within CISA said, oh, if you just give us more money, we'll be good to go and we can close the gap. And then we were like, well, we haven't studied it enough in depth to know that they're closing the right gap. And like, you have to really look at these metrics. So this concept of a Bureau of Cyber Statistics has been floated out there. It was being focused primarily on incidences and uh, collecting information on incident responses and those types of things along the lines. And we said, hey, if you're going to do that, then we should really take a look at a cyber statistics agency that is similar to like the Bureau of Labor Statistics. So that's a good place to leave it. We're going to take a short break. And when we return, we'll have more on cybersecurity and the report with Karen Evans, Managing Director of Cyber Readiness Institute, and then Chinoff, the Executive Director of the IBM Center for the Business of Government. I'm Dave Wendergren, and you're listening to Accelerating Government, brought to you by ACDIAC on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Accelerating Government, brought to you by ACT-IAC on Federal News Network. I'm Dave Wendergren, and we're talking about the recently released National Academy of Public Administration report on cybersecurity education with Karen Evans, Managing Director of the Cyber Readiness Institute, and Dan Chenock, the Executive Director of the IBM Center for the Business of Government. Both are former OMB executives with distinguished careers in government and industry, and both are fellows of the National Academy of Public Administration. When we went into the commercial break, Karen, you were telling us a little bit about this idea of creating a Bureau of Cyber Statistics. Why don't you finish that part for us? Well, I could talk forever about this because it's a passion as well as the workforce issues. But what we're really looking at in the concept here was to expand what has initially been introduced into the ecosystem, right? And say, hey, the government knows how to do this. We have statistical agencies all across the board measuring different information like the census, right? Labor statistics, justice statistics. So it would make sense that you would have a Bureau of Cyber Statistics. And then the idea is not, let's not just track things about the incidents, but let's really look at um, workforce because we have data out there, right? There's CyberSeq, there's several different initiatives out there. The numbers, um, you know, people question some of the veracity of the numbers, but right now the numbers are huge. So what you really want to be able to track is 
Is a program working? Does it have the right uh, measures? Is it closing a workforce gap? You know, is it expanding out the pipeline the way that we need it? Is it getting more diverse candidates into these jobs? What other kind of things do we have to do based on success rates that we're seeing, right? And right now that specificity is not being measured. So it's a thousand flowers are blooming, which are nice, but we're going to have to weed them down a little bit so that we can actually close the gaps that we need. Sticking with you for a minute, Karen, let's also talk for a moment about the changing nature of cybersecurity jobs. I'll say as far back as the NAPA study panel that you and I did several years ago on the Centers of Academic Excellence, you've been championing the idea that we need to train more people with skills beyond, for example, being good at cybersecurity compliance and certification. And that came up again, that continues to come up, right, along the lines of alternate pathways too. So when we talk about the NICE initiative, they have the framework, right? You're looking at the competencies, you're looking at a bunch of different things. What was also looked at as part of this study is the Department of Homeland Security also had just recently released what they call CTMS, which is the Cyber Talent Management System. Yeah, we could get a little wonky on some of this stuff, but what that is really Really trying to do is match aptitude to a job to capabilities right and so it's it's to change the dynamic a little bit about taking competencies aptitude capabilities and matching a person into a job so that then you can close some of the gaps like with training or if the person doesn't have a four-year degree do they really need to have a four-year degree to be able to do some of this work and i think when you start hearing the office of the national cyber director talk about this they have a view like chris really has a view of everything that needs to be done then what has to be done for many, and then what is the few? And I would have to say that the last 10 years, everybody gets caught up in the smaller group of what you need, like the forensics experts, right? The threat hunters, these really high-end skills. And um, that's what the other study was talking about as well is, but there is a whole bunch of people, if we think about this, along the lines of first responders, right? The operators, that this is something that DHS was looking at when I was there, is like uh, the Network Operations Security Center, combining the two, because you have to keep network, you have to keep operations running and it has to stay running, but you have to triage it and then pass it up the line, right? So it's people who can triage what's happening in an operations environment, realize what they have, and then pass it up to the experts. We need a lot more of those, right? While you're, we're working on what are the skills and what are those capabilities that the high end has to be able to demonstrate on the job as well. Let's turn to you, Dan, and let you build on that subject of the changing nature of work and maybe tell us about some of the competencies or approaches that you'd like to see colleges and universities focus on. And and you can go as broad as you want, both to the point that Karen also made about these alternative pathways and everyone doesn't need a, a you know, a, a master's degree to be a, a cyber cyber warrior. Yeah, well, future. it starts long before college. So, and it's kind of roughly corresponds to what Karen described as the, the many, the, uh, the all the many and the few, which is something Chris English coined as well. And that's, you know, the K-12 education system, all of us have responsibilities as users of practicing good cyber hygiene, just like we all drive a car from the age of 16 and we learn to put a seatbelt on. Uh, it's, a, it's a requirement. 
Uh, and uh, we know, you know, we learned how to, how to make a, how to left turn and a right turn and parallel parking and, and all the rest. And we don't really have a basic set of competencies that are agreed upon that the K-12 system can deliver to everybody. So then you get into the sort of college university system and they're training both uh, workers that are going to technology and critical infrastructure industries like energy and water and power that rely on technology. And they need to know about sort of what are the threats to the system, because if those systems go down, um, you know, obviously there's a risk to the public, there's a significant level of harm. So they need to kind of understand how does cybersecurity work in our systems? And there are a set of competencies for that that need to be built into things like technology programs and at both the community college, college and graduate level. And then there are the competencies that Karen talked about around the specialty areas for cybersecurity professionals, um, penetration testing, data security architects, network security engineers. And there are skills and companies that are that are done well, but they're often done in a way now that are disconnected from the other uh, curricula that we're talking about. So you've got a set of people that are learning about, let's say, technology or process that don't get enough cyber training. And then you've got a set of people who get really deep cyber training, but they may not get sort of the, why does this matter for the industries that we're working in as part of their education? And so part of what we're suggesting is that that needs to be, colleges and universities need to have a more sort of relevant set of offerings in terms of building those competencies. And especially at the area of not just filling the 500,000 or, or more jobs that are that are open now um, to get them in sort of in the door quickly. But we've got a medium term issue of this is only going to get to be more significant. I mean, the last two years have shown us how dependent we all are on technology for every aspect of life. We're not going to go back um, for the most part. Um, you know, people will go back to work in person. That's true. But they'll still want the option of, of doing everything that they could during the pandemic uh, online because they'll want to do that for convenience sake. So, uh, understanding the skills and competencies that are needed and having programs that incorporate those skills in an experiential way. So it's not just a classroom experience, but that you get like internships or basically practice sessions with companies where they're coming in, um, the ability of people to maybe take a year off in the middle of their career to, to retrain. All of those things are part of this kind of how do we create pathways to build competencies to address the skills and needs that Karen described. I wanted to add on to that, that our panelists also brought up is you can have the overall governance structure, right? The overall strategy. But I think what you're going to find is, and it's like uh, pockets of excellence and it'll be geographic, right? And it's going to take the partnership of the academia, the industry in that area, right? As well as the public sector. And so that was highlighted, like there are best practices that are out there that are working really well in, in some communities because they bought this total integration of the key industry, you know, their, their education um, institutes that are in that area, try, making sure they're building a pipeline that goes to the college, right, that can then come out and fulfill those jobs so that 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 population stays in that geographical area. And so, you know, we we looked at what what was that that was working well and it was that partnership, right? And it's going to take that community of industry, ed academia and public sector folks to make that work. 
It is so true. I mean, it is such a big coalition that it takes to get this work done. And that's why I think the report is just so powerful. A whole government plan, but a plan for the entire nation. We're going to take a short break now. And when we return, we'll have more on the cybersecurity education report from the National Academy of Public Administration, co-led by our two guests today, both NAPA fellows, Karen Evans and Dan Chinock. I'm Dave Wendergren, and you're listening to Accelerating Government, brought to you by ACT-IAC on Federal News Network. Welcome back. You're listening to Accelerating Government, brought to you by ACT-IAC on Federal News Network. I'm Dave Wendergren, and today we're talking about the recently released National Academy of Public Administration report on cybersecurity education with former government leaders and current industry executives, Karen Evans, Managing Director for the Center for the Cyber Readiness Institute, and Dan Chinook, the Executive Director of the IBM Center for the Business of Government. So Dan, we'll come back to you and say one of the keys to success will actually be to attract and retain the federal cybersecurity workforce of the future. Why don't you share with us some of the thoughts and recommendations that you all came up with on the importance of pipeline building and how do we actually get folks to come in? Yeah, so that's a great question. And I happen to be at a conference right now on the future of work. So it's a timely topic, not just in the cybersecurity field, but across for for all professions as they think about sort of what happens in the post-pandemic new normal and how do we attract people into public service professions uh, around that. And in this case, it's sort of, again, starting with the opportunities for people to understand that they can have a career in cybersecurity early on. You know, people people learn about doctors and lawyers and uh, baseball players. Uh, They don't really hear about becoming a cyber person. And so uh, working with schools to identify that these people are, are serving a critically important role in the country. They are profession. It's a profession you should be, you can aspire to. And the, there are a set of skills and competencies for our last discussion that you need to develop to enter that profession. Uh, and then once they're in sort of high school and community college, especially, um, there are a set of pathways uh, that to build the workforce like apprenticeship programs, experiential learning like cyber ranges where you can go in and, and basically understand sort of how things work in practice. You can see how a, um, a network perimeter defense is built, how, how a distributed uh, set of developers can come together to protect a cloud computing network. Um, so there are ways that workers can come together and, and basically understand, all right, here's how I can enter the profession. And through those programs, companies can then see, all right, here's here are a, a cadre of people that have skills that we want to hire. And the government can do that, too. And the government, unfortunately, has been limited, as it has in, in many different ways, as NAP, NAP, the National Academy has documented in numerous studies, um, that the federal hiring process can be improved. Similarly, uh, you know, getting cybersecurity professionals in quickly to stop you know, threats that are manifesting in real time can't go at the speed of a traditional federal hiring process. So looking at pathways that have been used for other areas like the technology area around digital services, uh, DHS uh, through the CTMS, Cyber Talent Management System that Karen described, looking at ways to make that more efficient. uh, There are those pathways. And then there's the industry, which provides a lot of the talent that government uses to deliver these services. So a lot of it gets contracted out or it gets implemented through state and local governments that are working with industry or nonprofits in their in their area. And sort of understanding the ecosystem of people that provide for these jobs and understanding a way to match and what the report talked about matching people to jobs, sort of saying, all right, here's a, a set of competencies. 
here is a, a set of open jobs. Let's do a better job of, of brokering um, so that people can see, all right, I'm going to have the basic skills. I'm going to have the experiential learning, and then I'm going to be able to find the right job for me. All of those things are important. It is an exciting time. and It's an exciting career field to get involved in. And Karen, let's let's come back over to you to build on what Dan was saying. But also, I'll just say, you know, the government still has a challenge attracting and then retaining the workers for the future that are so desperately needed. So as you build on Dan's answer, what's some advice you'd like to offer our audience, particularly the government folks in our audience, about how to how to take advantage of the tools that are out there to bring this workforce in and make it a positive experience for them? So there was a couple key things that Dan said that I want to highlight, and I think this is the crux of the issue. And when you start talking to a bunch of people that are in this field, and he he's, he used the word profession, and he talked about the cybersecurity professional. And we do not, to this day, have a clear definition of what a cybersecurity professional is because it's multifaceted. That is what the challenge is. That's the challenge in this field because it's diverse and what you're looking for. So it has a lot of different meetings and because it has so many different meetings, it's hard for people to create the pathways, right? And then to remove the barriers or the perceived barriers that are there. So what I'm looking for in the national strategy as it goes forward is a clear definition and you can have multiple definitions because even as we've rolled out this study, um, several of the questions that have come in is how how do you deal for the, the uh, the skills that you need going forward into the future because technology evolves uh, so much, you know, the threat landscape changes so much, you know, so what we're at the heart of that issue is the difference between training and education, like training someone in the skills, but then teaching and giving them the education to have the, uh, that capability to be able to continuously adapt and uh, do the analysis. And so, we have to resolve that because that has to be clear so that all of academia can then, you know, do what they need to do to get the workforce ready. In the meantime, though, and that's what I think, Dave, you're really getting at too, is we still have this immediate need. We have to be able to close the gap. And how can we do this? And um, I, I think some of the immediate need can be addressed by going through non-traditional types of approaches. The, if you believe that STEM is the reason why we have this shortage, well, okay, that's a mid to long-term issue that's not going to be fixed because we don't have enough people in STEM now. And can we live with that gap? That means that we look at like reskilling. You know, if the government's going to continue to require a four-year degree, is it what for as long as I have a four year degree and the person can show the aptitude, then let me retrain them, you know, into another job that we can have them do this. And uh, you need to have multiple skills in this area. Like some of the best people through my previous work with the US Cyber Challenge were like communications people. Like they did a great job because they just looked at the world very differently when they were on the team. There are promising things out there. And that's what we talked a little bit about the CTMS system. When that works, the whole idea is like, it's your aptitude. You go through a series of, in essence, tests, and then there's questions. There's a bunch of different things that you do, and it matches you up to the other side. The key to that is the government has to be clear on what the competencies are right? So you have to have a clear definition of what these competencies are 
in order for the person to make it through to match them up. So that'll be part of the challenges. But I think, you know, non-traditional types of things, community colleges, you know, looking for diversity in this, going into, you know, the not looking at, not that I don't like Stanford or MIT guys, <laughs> I do, but it's like looking at different pools uh, of people, you know, going into some of uh, inner cities and going to those colleges and going to those community colleges and recruiting out of there is really going to give you that diverse workforce that you're looking for. And then offering alternatives. There are things that the government can do that private industry can't do. For example, like one of the things I used to do when I was hiring is we have the ability to forgive student debt. And so you can offer that as an incentive to come in. It might, it's hard to get through some of these other hoops, but we have the ability to do that. And so we can do those things. You know, we used to make the argument about mission, 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 but, you know, with the way, especially in the energy sector, the mission is really pretty critical on the private sector side because the infrastructure is owned by the private sector. So it's hard for us to differentiate mission in some of these uh, different areas, but there are other tools that we can use until we'll, we'll need congressional help to be able to open up the aperture. All right, Dan, we've got about 20, 30 seconds left. You get to have the last word on the report. And the so word. it's our hope that this is going to be actionable. And there um, we have a couple of other events that are coming up uh, that we'll, we'll have, be talking more about, working with folks like Ron Sanders at the uh, University of South Florida Cyber Institute that he runs, uh, working with the White House office. We'll be having more dialogue later in the spring. So uh, the key is to not let this sit on a shelf, to actually develop an understanding of the competencies, an understanding of the credentialing necessary, the, the apprenticeships and practical programs to enable people to enter this field in a way that makes a meaningful impact and improves the cybersecurity posture of the nation. Excellent. And that's the place where we'll have to leave it. Karen Evans is the Managing Director for the Cyber Readiness Institute. Dan Chenuk is the Executive Director of the IBM Center for the Business of Government. Both are outstanding fellows of the National Academy of Public Administration. Their report is titled A Call to Action, the Federal Government's Role in Building a Cybersecurity Workforce for the Nation. It's available for download both on the Federal News Network website and the National Academy of Public Administration website. Karen and Dan, thank you so much for your leadership. Thank you for joining us today. And we're going to take a short break. And when we return, we'll hear from John Marshall about shared services. I'm Dave Wendergren. You're listening to Accelerating Government brought to you by ACT-IAC on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Accelerating Government with ACT-IAC. I'm Dave Wenergren, and I'm delighted to be joined for this segment by John Marshall, founder and CEO of the Shared Services Leadership Coalition and a former government and industry executive. Welcome to the show, John. Thanks, Dave. It's great to be with you today. John, from your days as an executive at USAID, through your time in industry, and now leading the coalition, you've been a great champion for the power and promise of shared services. Why don't we start today by just sharing with us a little bit about the work of the Shared Services Leadership Coalition? Yeah, thanks, Dave. I'd love to do that. And I love the title of your program, Accelerating Government, because that's what SSLC is all about. In fact, that's part of our mission statement, is that we are an organization that's dedicated to uh, picking up the pace uh, of uh, implementation of shared services throughout the government. We're a community of government and industry leaders who have a passion for this. And uh, our programs provide opportunities for leaders to build relationships, to learn with from one another, 
and become shared services evangelists. And it's our uh, belief that through the combined efforts of this, getting this government and industry community um, organized and mobilized, we can become a force multiplier for the cultural change that it takes to sustain uh, transformation government-wide. Absolutely. And uh, as we think about government, you know, there's there's a lot of shared services work going on. I'm wondering if maybe we should look at what are some of the federal shared services initiatives that you're excited about that you see going on in the market? Yeah, well, there, there quite a, there's quite a bit going on. Uh, but first, let me uh, offer a definition that, uh, that that we have embraced to define what shared services is. Uh, there's some misunderstandings about it. We define shared services as the transformation of service delivery in the in the federal government through implementation of standardized, scalable capabilities, services, and technologies that improve government operations and allow agencies to focus on mission while enhancing employee and customer experience in a secure and efficient environment. And we've tailored our definition to uh, support the uh, Biden administration's president's management agenda. It's about uh, uh, strengthening and empowering the federal workforce, delivering excellent, equitable, and secure services and customer experience and managing the business of the government to build back better. So there are a lot of things going on. Uh, first of all, at the government-wide level, we've had for the last several years, GSA's Office of Shared Solutions and Performance Improvement has created a very robust governance structure of agency leaders, issued guidance to agencies, uh, set up standards for common services. Uh, they've issued the M3 playbook. That means Modernization and Migration Management Playbook, which is some um, really uh, helpful guidance to, to help agencies manage their migration or their modernization. This playbook was re recently e reissued, and SSLC had some input into, uh, into that uh, updated version. Uh, there's a new performance management framework uh, that's under development now by OSPI to create some performance metrics for measuring shared services value add. Uh, and there are a number of shared services that have been around for quite a long time that are approaching pretty full utilization across the government. These are things like GSA's smart pay, uh, real property management, fleet management, and treasury's payment and invoicing services. So those are, are really important services that have been that are, are producing tremendous value. But I think the thing that most of us are keeping our closest eye on these days is the work of the quality service management offices or QSMOs as they're uh, identified. These are teams that the, the departments of Treasury, Homeland Security and Health and Human Services that are creating the future marketplaces, government and uh, commercial marketplaces for financial management, cybersecurity, and grants-related shared services. So there's a lot going on, but that's kind of where, where we're really most excited about is to watch and see what those QSMOs uh, create for the, the future uh, shared services marketplaces. You mentioned the president's management agenda. It's, it's always good to see that uh, shared services has a place of prominence. And, uh, and I suppose it's also really good to note that from administration to administration, there's been a real consistency in purpose here. I mean, you know, slightly different naming conventions, but there's been a priority emphasis put on shared services in the Bush administration, the Obama administration, the Trump administration, and now in the Biden administration. As you look at the president's management agenda, what do you think will be some of the top shared services priorities for federal agencies in the year ahead as they work to implement that plan? Yeah, well, we're still waiting to see that as the PMA is uh, rolled out in, in greater specificity. And as you know, Dave, shared services isn't really called out as a specific initiative in the PMA, uh, as it has been in the past. But we see shared services as an important enabler of all three of the priority areas defined in the PMA, the ones I mentioned a minute ago, strengthening, empowering the workforce, 
delivering excellent, equitable, and secure uh, services and managing the business of government. So there's a lot under there that the shared services isn't going away. It's kind of been baked into the to the fabric and the architecture of government modernization. And so the progress is continuing, even though it may not be uh, highlighted quite as much as it has in the past. But there's an, an area where we see even greater potential in the future is in is in supporting direct mission delivery. When you think about it, you know we know there's massive duplication and overlap across the entire government. You know, we, we've seen GAO reports every year pointing this out, and it just keeps growing larger and larger. It doesn't go away. Uh, but there are lots and lots of agencies with complementary uh, or overlapping missions that could leverage shared services, uh, you know, for information sharing and other forms of mission support. You know, think about all the, uh, all the agencies, you know, eight or 10 agencies with some mission responsibility in uh, environmental and natural resources uh, management. Uh, I think all the agencies involved in social uh, services, whether it's HHS or HUD or education or Labor Department or the Veterans Administration, uh, EDA, uh, SBA, you you would think there's lots of opportunity there to to do better information sharing and uh, technology services to manage all of those programs more effectively and and focus in the the government's response in in more strategic and targeted ways. You got to add one other other, uh, highlight here, Dave. The um, uh, SSLC and the IBM Center for the Business of Government are releasing a study very soon that explores some of these opportunities where we've called out the COVID response experience as a proxy for how uh, shared services and supply chain uh, uh, technologies and capabilities could be leveraged more effectively. And we'll be sharing some of these findings at the upcoming Shared Services Summit, co-sponsored coincidentally by SSLC and ACT-IAC on April 28th. And we'll tell the audience more about how to how to register for that conference coming up. You, you make a really important point, John, and, and that's around this idea about, you know, it's one thing to take common services and get those done. But when you start talking about the mission of the organization, that's when I think you really get the, the power of the value of shared services, getting the employees of the agency to get excited because it really is the mission that we're trying to get done. So I'm delighted to see that progress in mission delivery services. It's not easy work, though. And, uh, and, you know, there are challenges. And I, I just wonder if maybe you want to share a little bit with the audience, like some of the challenges that we still face in implementing shared services solutions and maybe some advice you might have for folks. Yeah, thanks, Dave. And that, that's always the toughest uh, issue. And it's a great question. But, you know, I don't think I have anything really new to add here. There, there's it, it's change has been hard uh, as long as humans have been on the surface of uh, of the earth. Uh, uh, you know, uh, my wife keeps trying to get me to, to, to try a new toothpaste, but I like my old toothpaste, so I don't want to change. And we're all like that. But, you know, when it gets to services in the government, um, it, it always gets down to the people. You know, we, we may think, oh, I'm implementing a new technology and it's really hard. But when you peel back the layers of the onion, it's never about the technology itself or the process. It's, it's about the people. And, and when you're talking about shared services, it's about getting people from uh, different cultures, different agencies to accept a standardized vanilla service uh, and, and to let go of some nice to have kind of snowflake features. The other challenge is getting them, is getting them to trust a third party service provider uh, to manage the services as well as an agency may think uh, they can manage it themselves. Uh, so it's always a challenge and you know, there's really no secret sauce. You, you just have to be very thoughtful, very intentional about engaging with your customers and key stakeholders throughout the entire process from the beginning to end. Uh, and this is why, incidentally, we think the PMA's emphasis on customer experience can be 
a change management game changer. Uh, the, the other indispensable ingredient is strong leadership, top support uh, from the management of your agency and key stakeholders. You have to anticipate that some of your customers are going to be disgruntled and will complain to your agency head to their appropriators and, and other stakeholders uh, and try to get uh, exceptions to the shared service. Uh, Absolutely. So yeah. Yeah, absolutely, John. It, it is like a new brand of toothpaste. It all comes down to letting go of personal control and being willing to try something new. John Marshall is the founder and CEO of the Shared Services Leadership Coalition. John, thank you so much for joining us today. And if you'd like to learn more about Shared Services, there's a great opportunity close at hand. On Thursday, April 28th, ACT-IAC and the Shared Services Leadership Coalition are co-sponsoring the 2022 Shared Services Summit. The event will take place at the Renaissance Hotel in Washington, D.C., and you can find a link to register at both the Federal News Network website and at our website, www.actiac.org. We've covered a lot of ground on two top topics today, cybersecurity and shared services, both important opportunities to accelerate mission outcomes through collaboration, leadership, and education. I'm Dave Wendergren, and you've been listening to Accelerating Government, brought to you by ACT-IAC on Federal News Network. Thanks for listening to Accelerating Government with ACT-IAC. You can listen to this episode and past episodes anytime in your podcast feed. Search for Accelerating Government on Podcast One, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts.